This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, well, as we've already uh, noticed this morning, um, Matthew's Gospel uh, starts in a rather odd way. Um, if you skim over those first 17 verses there in chapter 1, you'll notice that what we have there is a, a family tree, a genealogy. And uh, to us, it kind of just looks like a whole bunch of names, some of them we're familiar with from the Old Testament, some of them perhaps not familiar with at all. Uh, a whole bunch of them we might have some difficulty pronouncing as well. I was very tempted to make those first 17 verses the Bible reading for this morning, um, but I didn't have the heart to do that to Phil. But let's be honest, if you sat down and started reading Matthew, you probably would skip ahead to verse 17, wouldn't you? You'd want to get to where the good stuff begins, where the story starts properly at Jesus' birth. Um, And I guess if it was my job to publish this book, um, I would have probably pressured Matthew to stick his genealogy up in an appendix in the back somewhere, a little out of the way. Um, I don't think any editor in their right mind would let an author begin their book like this. But it's also true, isn't it, that uh, there is 
a growing interest in family histories and in genealogies more generally. Um, lots of people have been doing research on Ancestry.com and, and similar websites uh, trying to trace out their origin story, the, the family history on, on both sides. Um, and recently too, well maybe not so recently, over the last 10 years SBS has been running this program called Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, and there are you know, partner programs in the UK and in the United States and some of those programs are screened here as well. Um, in this show, famous people uh, trace their own family histories. They get back into their roots. They try and discover who their ancestors were, what they were like. Um, and usually a few skeletons fall out of the closet in the process. But it's a show all about identity and place and filling in that rich tapestry of who we are and how we're connected to the past. And I think it's as though Matthew is giving us uh, a bit of an episode of who do you think you are, but in print form here in the opening chapter. Um, and of course, Matthew includes this genealogy not because, well, he's just interested in that kind of thing, and I know some of you are, uh, but Matthew has a clear agenda. He includes his genealogy because he wants to establish Jesus's credentials, who he is related to, who he is descended from. And he wants to establish up front that Jesus is the king God had promised to send. And so he shows us through the genealogy that Jesus fits the bill because he's descended from all the right people, that he has the right pedigree. But of course, it's not just his bloodline that Matthew is interested in. He also wants the readers to make the connection between Jesus and the promises that God has made throughout years past. Promises to people like Abraham and David. And that's where he begins, right at the start of the Gospel. So these are the very first words that we have for us in the New Testament. And Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 begins this way. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here are the, the three people in particular that Matthew wants us to see the connection between. Uh, Abraham, David and Jesus himself. Now Abraham of course is the most revered figure in Israel's history. He's where it all begins for them. The father of the nation. Uh, the one that God plucked out of obscurity and made a covenant with. Made these promises to about having a land of his own. Uh, promises about his people becoming a great nation, that his people would be God's chosen special people. And ultimately he promises that the whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham. Jesus is a son of Abraham. And of course King David stands at the high point of Israel's history and God made some very unique promises to David uh, that a king from David's line would always rule over God's people. And just as King David represents the very highest point in Israel's history, Matthew also draws attention to the low points in Israel's history too. He speaks of the exile in this genealogy. It's mentioned there at the end of verse 11 and verse 12 and again in verse 17. The exile, of course, describes that time when God's people were sent out of the land of Israel. And after years of repeated unfaithfulness and a refusal to repent, God reluctantly brings his judgment upon them, uses the Babylonians to come in and conquer the land 
and Israel is exiled. A large chunk of the, the population is sent off to live in Babylon. And of course, they no longer have a king on the throne. Now, if you know the story, you know that many of them returned to the land some 70 years later, but things were never the same. They never kind of returned to the sort of heights that they had under King David and King Solomon. And since that time, some 500 years before Jesus arrives, Israel has never had a king of their own again. They've always been living under foreign rulers. And so Israel are a nation who are waiting. They're waiting for God to restore their kingdom. They're waiting for God to send this saviour figure that he's promised them. And that's really the point Matthew wants to make with this genealogy, that the time for waiting is over, that God's promises will stand, and that Jesus is the descendant that he's promised, the one who's going to fulfil all of the promises that God has made. Look at how uh, Matthew sums up the genealogy there in verse 17 of chapter 1. He says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. With the birth of Jesus, the Christ, God's promised saviour, the the promised king has arrived. And those years of exile are coming to an end. And the fulfilment of all that God has promised his people through the pages of the Old Testament, from Abraham to David, through the prophets during the exile, all of that is about to take place. It's come to this. The kingdom is arriving with Jesus. But there's another interesting lesson I think we can draw from the genealogy. And it comes from some rather unexpected names that we find in that genealogy. Now you'll notice that the genealogy is mostly a list of men. I don't want to get into the whole patriarchy thing this morning. But interestingly, Matthew mentions four women in the genealogy as well. Uh, See if you can spot them there. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth... And Bathsheba, uh, described as Uriah's wife. And they are a very unusual group of women to mention. Uh, Someone has dubbed them the shady ladies of the Old Testament. And it's, it's a pretty fair call. One of them was a prostitute. Another pretended to be to seduce her father in law. And one of them famously committed adultery with King David. Uh, now, The names themselves evoke those stories of scandal and, in some cases, shame. But another thing that's quite unusual about them and that they have in common is that they are all foreigners. Well, we're not 100% sure about Bathsheba's heritage. She was married to a guy named Uriah who was a Hittite. He was a foreigner. So it's it's fair to assume that she was as well. Um, But certainly the other three are. And I think that's just a fascinating thing for Matthew to mention and, and particularly pick these women out of all of those that belong in Jesus's bloodline. In their genealogy where Matthew is wanting to establish and to demonstrate that Jesus is descended from all the right people, why would he draw our attention to these particular women, these skeletons in the ancestral closet? Well, I don't doubt that he does it because Matthew wants to introduce his readers to the idea that Jesus is not simply coming as the king of Israel. Jesus is coming to be the king of a far greater kingdom than that, one that will include all the nations. 
Matthew wants his Jewish readers, and we'll talk about this as we go on in Matthew. Matthew was generally understood to be written primarily to a Jewish audience, but clearly he has Gentiles in mind as well. But he particularly wants, I think, his Jewish readers to appreciate and to understand that it has always been a part of God's plan to bring people from every nation into God's family. And he does that here with this perhaps not so subtle nod uh, by including these women in their genealogy. He wants them to see that God has already woven the other nations into the fabric of his salvation. The Gentile nations have already been included into the very bloodline of Jesus. And so we see even here that God's concern has never solely been for the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham. God has a a grander plan in mind. And the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring has global ambitions. I do wonder too if Matthew was preparing us in some way for the upcoming scandal that he's about to drop on us of the unmarried Mary falling pregnant uh, and a reminder that God has worked through things like that uh, plenty of times before. And in fact, that's where we go next. Uh, From verse 18 onwards, we have this, well, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And we're introduced to Mary and Joseph. Now, we just had Christmas, so I'm sure you're all familiar with this story, Um, even if it wasn't just from this Christmas, but the previous 40 or 50. Uh, Mary, we're told, is pregnant, and her fiancé, Joseph, is not the father. Now, I don't care what your cultural background is, this is not a good situation, is it? But as we get reminded every year at Christmas, an angel comes and explains to Joseph what is going on and, in fact, what is about to happen. And in particular, this angel tells Joseph that he is to give the child a particular name. Uh, You'll find that there in verse 21. The angel says, She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, A few years ago, some scientists produced a study on uh, a rather odd phenomenon that they'd observed. They'd noticed that a lot of people had names that seemed to fit the professions that they were in. And they they coined a very scientific term to describe this. They called it nominative determinism. I'll try and say that again. No, I won't actually. Once is enough. Uh, Nominative determinism, which basically means that a person's name has an effect on the kind of life they will end up living uh, or draw them potentially into a particular career path. Now, it kind of sounds a bit ridiculous and, and maybe it is just a coincidence, but there are no shortage of examples where this is the case. Um, The fastest man on the planet still, Usain Bolt. Uh, There was another famous Russian hurdler, Maria Stepanova. That was not a joke. Um, What about these guys? Uh, Andrew Drinkwater from the Water Research Centre, Uh, and David Waterhouse, who happens to be the owner of a houseboat. Uh, Now, I wonder if the BBC has set those up. I don't know. But no doubt, perhaps in your own life, you've met, you know, a dentist named Fang or a doctor named Payne. Uh, They are about. When When it comes to your name relating to your work and your purpose in life, Jesus is about as clear as it gets. 
Because Jesus, or as it would have been in the Hebrew, Joshua, it's the same name, uh, that name translates simply as God saves. And so what the angel says to Joseph effectively there in verse 21 is, you were to give him the name God saves, Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. But that's not his only name. If you read on in the next verse, Jesus is given this other title as well. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The child that Isaiah prophesied about has arrived and this title will be for him, Emmanuel, God with us. And so these two names, these two titles for Jesus, make it, well, as clear as it can be, really. God saves and God with us. That's who Jesus is and that's what he's come to do. When Jesus is born, we realise that he's not there to simply provide us with some assurance that God is with us in this life. Uh, Rather uniquely, he is God present with us. In Jesus, God takes on our humanity becomes a part of this creation. And the people, they'd been waiting for their Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, who will rule over and rescue the people of God. They were waiting for their Messiah, but no one was expecting God himself to show up. The people had been waiting for their king to come and save them, to lead them out of exile, but no one was expecting this king. No one was expecting a king to come with no army, no riches, no palace. He's the son of David, sure, but he looks nothing like David in so many ways. No one expects him to establish a kingdom that has no borders, no capital. A kingdom that would ultimately be made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every language, from every continent kingdom made up of all of those who know and trust God. A kingdom that cannot be defeated, a kingdom that will last forever. And no one was expecting how that kingdom would be established, how this king would save, because this king came to serve and this king came to suffer. And that God would send his one and only son into the world to give his life as a payment for sin. Jesus will say about himself later in Matthew's Gospel that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The God who made all that there is sends his son to die at the hands of those that he has made, those that he loves, those that he wants back, those he came to save. And nobody saw that coming. When we reach chapter 2 in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew's got a few more surprises in store for us and we see it in the the contrasting responses that there are to Jesus. Um, There are some who are certainly not happy about Jesus' arrival and there are those who are delighted by it. Um, We're told at the beginning of chapter 2 about uh, these wise men, these magi, who come from the east. Um, We can't say for certain where they came from, probably from the region of Persia. Um, They were into their astronomy, but we we don't know that for sure. 
and they follow this star to be there. They come in search of this new king. So verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's not just curiosity that's brought these men on their journey. They've come to pay tribute, they say. They, they want to respect this new king. They've, in fact, come to worship him. Now, they're not sure exactly where he is or how to find him, so they head kind of to the local authorities, uh, King Herod, um, who was, as we know, not really a king, more a kind of puppet governor appointed by the Romans. But... Even knowing that, you would have assumed that Herod, as a, at least a half-Jewish man anyway, the one who was ruler over God's people, you would have thought that he would have had some excitement, something, uh, some sort of positive reaction about this announcement that God's promised saviour had come into the world. But his reaction is just the opposite of that. He, he sees him only as a threat. And we read about what he does there in, from verse 4. It says, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. The Magi had asked the king. Herod asks his advisers. Uh, and the answer comes back in verse 5. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this little piece of information, um, Herod will tuck away and ultimately will lead to him ordering the death of all of the infants born in and around Bethlehem during that time. And none of this is because Herod is somehow confused. In fact, he seems quite confident that the Old Testament prophecies are right and can be trusted. He's not questioning the fact that God has sent his long-promised Messiah into the world, only that he sees that figure as a rival to himself and so tries to end his life. It's a response we're going to have to get used to as we read on in Matthew's Gospel. See, here, even before Jesus is old enough to utter a word, he's managing to divide people, to bring conflict. There are those who want to acknowledge Jesus as king, to honour him for who he is, like the wise men. And there are those who will violently reject him. We're also going to see throughout Matthew's Gospel more about the nature of this kingdom that he's come to bring. That it's not simply a kingdom for Israel, but in fact a unique kingdom for all the nations. Jesus is the king of Israel, but he's much more than that too. We see an indication of it in these four foreign women who are mentioned in his genealogy. We see it even here in these wise men, these foreigners who come from the east who respond to Jesus in the right way. They go to great lengths to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. They want to worship him, honour him as a king. The salvation that Jesus comes to bring is for all the nations. Jesus, the kingly descendant of David, the son of Abraham, is the one God promised to send. He's the one who will fulfill the promises God has made. He's Emmanuel, 
God with us. We find that God sends his saviour into the world and it's no one less than the son of God himself. Now we see contrasting reactions and responses to Jesus. Prompts a question for us, I think. How have you responded to this king? See, because of who Jesus is, because of who he and people like Matthew claim he is, it requires a response from us. Jesus is dividing people still, isn't he? There are those who will reject him, who want nothing to do with him, nothing to do with the salvation that he offers them. But there are also those who, with God's help, come to see him for who he is. Rejoice that he's come to save them and willingly bend the knee to worship him as the Lord and Saviour that he is.